Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now, I've known today's guest for many years and enjoyed listening to his stories at conferences and events that I've been to out in the Northwest, and I'm really thrilled that Chuck is going to be on the show here today. A little bit about his background, Chuck Neighbors is an actor and writer. For over 45 years, he has toured throughout North America as well as to 18 countries on six continents. His most popular show, a one-man dramatic adaptation of Charles Sheldon's classic In His Steps, has been featured in both radio and television as well as performed before thousands of audiences. Chuck's published works include 11 books of theater scripts. He's also authored Drama Workshop, Teaching Drama to Beginning Actors, and Church Pews, Potlucks, and A Tank of Gas, a survival guide for the independent Christian artist. And for something completely different, he published the best-selling children's book, I Am Lucy, and a book of faith-based limericks, Get Me to the Church in Rhyme. Chuck is a husband, a father, a grandfather, lives in Salem, Oregon, and I'm glad that uh, he's on the show. So, Chuck, thanks for joining me today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Steve. It's good to talk to you again. Now, I think we first met probably out at one of the conferences um, that uh, that was... Uh, I, I think in Redmond, Washington, maybe, if I remember uh, right. Actually, I think it predates that. I think I met you at a, first at a, a CETA conference, Christians in Theater Arts oh, Conference. Oh, goodness, yes. That was, that was the first time we connected. And, but then more recently up in, in Seattle at the uh, Christian Education Conference, I think they called yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's fantastic. And then my more, so. more vivid memory of actually spending some quality time together is when you were working on one of your novels and you came to Salem and you wanted to talk to somebody local about the the area for some research and yeah, we had a a, a lovely a lovely dinner in a Mexican restaurant and we talked about Silver Creek Falls and all the things up here in Oregon and that was a very special visit I enjoyed that immensely I do remember that and that was for my book I think it was for Placebo that I wrote a number of years ago kind of a thriller that takes place in um, in a fictional town that <laughs> out in Oregon and also in in Philadelphia, which is not quite so fictional, but um, but sort of those two areas, and uh, yeah, no, it's so it's great, uh, it's great to have you on, and you know, you've done shows for decades, really all over the world, and I thought I would just start by asking, you know, um, how did you actually get started in this? kind of unique career of doing one-man shows, doing storytelling, and also, you know, um, teaching actors throughout the world. Yeah. Well, it, it, I guess that goes way back to my childhood, of course. I, I was always, um, as a kid, very much involved in church life, and my very first exposure to real live theater was church plays. Huh. And I, I, I really enjoyed that, and I... I Continued even through uh, junior high and high school to be involved in productions. And in high school, I kind of, you know, I was floundering a little bit with what I was going to do with my life. Um, you know, and I discovered forensics, competitive speaking, and oh, yeah. tried out for the forensics team and ended up doing very well. I took second place in the state with humorous interpretive reading, my very first, you know, try out the door. And and then I got lead roles in some high school productions, and, and I began to feel like, you know, this this is my niche. I, I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't good at anything else. But all of a sudden, I discovered this is something I, I'm good at, and I enjoy it tremendously. And so that was kind of a pull in that direction. At the same time, growing up in the church, I, I had that call or that, that nudge, that urge that I wanted to be involved in ministry. And I didn't have a clue how that was going to come together. Um, but I went to college down in, in your neck of the woods. I went to college in Carson Newman oh, yeah. uh, in Jefferson City, Tennessee. And I went there pursuing a, a theater major, kind of a religion minor. 
And again, right out of the gate, I began to be cast in some you know, lead roles and plays, even as a freshman in college, and kind of confirmed that, yeah, this is, this is my thing. And then I, I spent um, a summer in the Smoky Mountain Passion Play, which you may have heard of, down in Townsend, Tennessee, um, my, my first professional gig working as assistant to the director and understudy for all male roles in the play. What? Um, How does that work? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. It, well, it was, a, it was a lot of work because I had to basically memorize the entire uh, show, and I didn't know from night to night whether I was going to be Judas or Jesus or just a, a guy <laughs> in the crowd, <laughs> you know, uh, and, I, and I played all, all the major roles. And the funny thing is when you're doing a long run like that, uh-huh. uh, the actors begin to get, you know, they, they get tired of doing, you know, six nights a week and matinees on the weekend. And so I, I kind of made a deal with all the actresses. If you know you are going to be, <clears throat> quote unquote, ill, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> would you please give me 24 hours notice so I have time to be prepared? I don't want to walk in and find out an hour before showtime that I have to go on as Jesus tonight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that really kind of began to confirm um, that this was, that I was going in the direction that I wanted to go in and yeah. that I felt called in. And there was somebody in that cast who was once a part of a group called the Covenant Players, which was a large international Christian theater company based out of Los Angeles. And I had never, at that point in my life, and this is in the 70s, I had never heard of a Christian theater company. I didn't know such a thing existed. Yeah. My, and my concept, even growing up in the church, is even though I had done a lot of church drama, um, church drama was really not that good. And so <laughs> the idea that, what, there's a professional theater company that's, that's doing theater, and that's all I needed to know. I, I began the process of, actually, I left college early to go join this troupe, oh. and I ended up traveling, traveling with them for almost 10 years, nine and a half years. Wow. And that's where I also met my wife, and we uh, toured together, and... That's how I kind of got into theater as my thing. My, even though, you know, I know this is about writing and everything, I'm probably, I consider myself first and foremost a performer. Yeah. And yeah. the writing thing that's part of who I am now and what I'm doing has kind of come alongside and kind of reluctantly on my part, to be honest. Um, but I traveled with uh, Covenant Players for, you know, almost, like I said, almost 10 years. And then again, I began to, to get that feeling, that calling, uh, that there was more to this. My wife and I wanted to start a family. We didn't think that the road life that we were living mm. was conducive to that. And so, so it was about that time. I, I, and I, calling is one of those words that people react very strangely to, but I kind of think everybody has a calling, uh-huh. you know, and I, I, I kind of distinguish a, a lowercase calling and an uppercase calling. <laughs> um, I, th- I think everybody has a calling that, that kind of lines up with what do you like to do? What's your passion? What are you good at? Yeah. That's, that's your calling. And the, but then there's the, the capital C calling, which is kind of a blood, sweat, and tears sort of thing where you feel that you're supposed to do something and there's an angst of, I don't think I want to do this. And, and for me, it was uh, a kind of a, a real wrestling match with, with God. I felt that, that he wanted me to, to leave this organization that I was comfortable in and branch out and specifically do a one-man show based upon the book In His Steps. Hmm. And... I didn't like that message. I didn't want to do that. It's like, I, I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't know the first thing about doing a one man show and who would, who would put this, write this show and put it together. And I had all kinds of reasons and excuses, but I, I just feel that, you know, the, the message was undeniably there. And it's not like I just read that book. I, I'd read the book years and years ago. And for those who don't know, that's, they may not know the title in his steps, but a lot of people will understand the WWJD oh, acronym, sure. What Would Jesus Do? That's where, that's where that came from. It came from this book written back in the 1800s. It's a classic oh, of Christian, wow. Christian literature. And so I, I, I wrestled with God, and finally I got to the point of, you know, of surrender, where I kind of one of those things where, oh, well, I guess, God, if this is really what you want me to do... <laughs> 
I'll try. <laughs> you know? And so we resigned the organization in uh, May of 1984. And in June, a month later, I did my first professional performance of wow. the one-man show. I was writing it together in months before. Yeah, well, I, I was writing the show while I was still in the, the organization, but um, I'd learned so much about the business side of, of being an actor in ministry, that, that sort of thing, that I was able to make that segue pretty quickly. Um, but it's funny, you know, as a writer, I had zero confidence in my ability to write the show. So I, I actually went around polling people looking for somebody. Can I, will somebody help me write? Can I find a writer who will write this <laughs> script for me? You know, and I, I met with a couple of people and they all looked at me and they just kind of shook their This is your vision, man. <laughs> you know, if you, <laughs> you're going to have to write it yourself. And so it was one of those things that one day, you know, I've, I've done about three book adaptations for the stage since then. Um, but when I first sat down with the book then and, and read it over and then kind of said, okay, how do I how do I put this on stage? Yeah. It began to it just it just unfolded. I knew exactly where to cut, you know, because I my presentation is about a forty five minutes of of a novel, you know, so it's it's obviously Reader's Digest condensed version, um, but I, but it just instinctually uh, came together for me, and I also had. At that, about that same time as I was beginning to research how to do this, I watched uh, Henry Fonda. One man show on Clarence Darrow, hmm. and I began to realize, okay, a one man show isn't just like a book report, yeah. <laughs> where you just stand up there and yeah. say this happened and this happened, you know. Or, and I'm not reading the book; I'm going to portray a character. And I learned all kinds of things just observing his performance of how he handled dialogue and how he used the stage uh, to help tell the story. And so it was through that process that I began to say, hey, I can do this, you know. <laughs> and so the, the play came together, and then it was like, okay, well, this is off and running, and I'm, I was actually keeping pretty busy with it, but I began to say, okay, uh, God, wake me up in the middle of the night now and tell me what's next. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> but that, but then I began to, you know, feel like, okay, I know what I can do, I, and he's kind of, I feel like God has shown me what he wants me to do, uh, now the message was get to work, and so I began to create other material from that point forward. And so, yep, like uh, for 35 of those 45 years that you mentioned, my work has been primarily doing one-man shows. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, that's yeah, – I can imagine there were lots of obstacles and challenges, and, you know, a lot of your shows have been at churches and in different, you know, faith-based events and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a little interesting when people talk about, like, church drama, like what you said earlier. You're like, well, maybe it's not always that good or something. Has that been an attitude you've had to sort of meet up with when you're like, yeah, I do this show and people are like, Oh, it's a church thing or whatever. Is, is, yeah, is for the like longest time, you yeah, have to overcome. You know, yeah, it it has been a battle. Um, the, there's, a, I'm going to say the name of a church, and you're going to instantly know what I'm talking about. But a lot changed for that. Uh, impression of drama through uh, the work of Willow Creek, mm-hmm. um, because the, uh, the Willow Creek Church, a church in the Chicago area, for the longest time, they, I, I don't think they do this anymore, but they, they use drama as an integral part of the worship service, to mm-hmm. kind of a short sketch yeah. to set up what the pastor was going to preach about. Um, and the the I think the first impression, the knee-jerk reaction to what is church drama, people think of beards and bathrobes and cardboard mm. camels. And, you know, it, it's, cardboard camels. Uh, it's kind of one of those, you know, you know, stereotypical, you know, kids doing the, the Christmas pageant, that sort of thing. And there is plenty of that out there. Matter of fact, just this week, somebody sent me a, a script of their Christmas pageant saying, hey, you got any ideas who might want to do this? And it's like, roll the eyes. How many oh, times oh, have I seen this yeah. script? <laughs> you know, um, but then there's a, there's a whole other area of drama that began to open up, which is probably, for lack of a better analogy, think of um, Saturday Night Live sketches, um, you know, even the old Carol Burnett show, you know, with the kind of sketches that you see in that. So a lot of of drama was coming out that was a little bit more sketch based that reflected real life, mm-hmm. not sometimes comedy, sometimes you know you know serious, but yeah. but you know short short vignettes that 
people could identify with and could, you know, and, and the whole idea of identification was the, was the main purpose. It's like, oh, there's a guy who's going through a struggle just like I am or who has this family situation going on just like me. And then they would see the, the pastor would then take that, that idea that was presented in the sketch and use that to launch a sermon. And, and most often the purpose of the sketch was to raise a question that the pastor would then address in the sermon. So a lot of my writing, uh, you know, my early writing has been, other than the one-man shows that I've created, have been written for that market, if you will, because churches all over the country began to say, we want to do what that church is doing. And and it opened up a lot of possibilities for uh, actors and theater people within the context of their faith to have a way of expressing and, and, and contributing to, to that climate. Yeah. And, and so I, I wrote a lot of that kind of material and most of my published works, you know, in, in scripts are, are short sketches like that. Now um, it's interesting when you mentioned, you know, struggle uh, that a lot of these short sketches had to do with struggles that people could identify with. And, you know, mm-hmm. one time I was teaching at a conference, I think it was an educator's conference, and this gentleman came up to me who was a pastor. He was a minister at, I don't remember what kind of church it was, but, but he said, you know, he's like, do you know in Jesus' stories, because Jesus told lots of stories, I mean, we, we all know that, some of his most famous ones, you know, the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son and these other stories. But anyway, this pastor said, um, do you know in every one of his stories we're meant to identify not with the person with the answers, but the person with the problems? Right. Thing, you know, to me as a storyteller and as a writer, to say, you know, what people identify with is not an answer giver, but it's the person who's like struggling. And I think that's true whether it's a novel, whether it's a movie, whether it's you know, even a one-man show or whatever it is, whatever story venue that we're telling or sharing through, it's like when people see struggle, tension, frustration, identification, empathy, all of those things pull us deeper you know, into the story. Exactly, yeah. That, that, and that, that, again, confirms what the the impression of, of Christian or religious drama was people would say, oh, it's just giving an answer, mm-hmm. you know, just doing it in, in a creative way, but you're just giving me an answer. And, but you're and actually doing the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's exactly what, you know, I love about drama and about storytelling is, yeah. is you pull a person in. It doesn't have, you don't, you know, the best stories to me don't come together at the end with everybody lives happily ever after, you know, um, some stories, yeah, but not all of them. Yeah. And 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 the fact that there's struggle going on there, there, you know, and and there's there's the I don't know that that's what we identify with. Even you know, especially in the last you know twenty years or so, there's been a trend even from pastors in the pulpit to be more authentic, mm. um, rather than seeing themselves as somebody just up there, you know, preaching the truth, you know, which yeah. is appropriate and, and they should do that. But I tell you, and, and I, I, I'm a student of body language and, and I, I love watching a congregation when there's a speaker on the stage who tells a good story. Yeah. Um, people get hooked in, they listen there and, and it's the story that they'll remember when they, when they leave the church and somebody says, what was that, what was that sermon about? Yeah. You know, they're, they're not going to say, well, uh, his three points were one, two, and three. <laughs> they're going to say, well, he, t- he told this story yeah. and, and I was on the edge of my seat and, and, you know, I wanted to know how that's going to end. And, and it's through that story that he, he had done it, you know, he, he, he caused me to identify. And, and also it's, it's a vulnerability thing when the pastor tells a story or anybody tells a story when they're the, they're the subject of their story and they're willing to show a weakness, show the fact that they struggle with something mm-hmm. that, that makes us all say, yeah, you're just like me. And if, and if this works for you, maybe it'll work for me. A lot of times when I do seminars on storytelling and speaking, I mention that when we look at our own lives to figure out what stories we might want to share from our lives, uh, it's very helpful to look at times when we were naive, overconfident, or underprepared. So any of those are usually good stories because instead of us bragging about how great we were accomplishing something, we're like, look, this was the time I fell on my, you know, fell on my face or that I failed and this is what I learned like this. 
that's what people identify with. I remember I was at this one event, and um, this person got up to, to share a story, and he started by saying, I don't want to brag or anything, but... And then he started his story. Like, never start a story like that. Because, <laughs> I mean, no matter what you say, it's going to come across as bragging, you know? Exactly, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think the, the best storytellers in my mind, you know, when I'm, you know, when I'm thinking of hearing somebody talk, not reading it in yeah. a book necessarily, but, but it, it's the self-depreciating. It's, it's in the best humor to me is self-depreciating. It's when you're the butt of your own jokes yeah. is what also makes the audience feel much more comfortable and, and relatable to you uh, rather than, you know, you, you know, even co- there's a lot of comedians out there that, you know, some that I just love and some that I just can't stand, you know, <laughs> be- because of how they, how they, pictured themselves mm-hmm. if they're an insult comic like, like don rickles is funny yeah no question but you know he's also you know his the the focus of his jokes is to insult the person yeah um where when you insult yourself the audience loves you more <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. um yeah. they're much more at ease because okay you've shown your weakness and and that's actually my my one man shows evolved over the over the years. The, my my most recent creations were two one man shows that I did were all about just my own personal stories. And oh, yeah. actually, I have to I have to tell you that doing that was probably the most fun I've ever had on stage was was sharing my own stories. Um, because I, you know, they, they were, they were authentic and, and yeah. they were stories of my own struggles and my own weakness. Um, but through that process, I know that the, the audience, I connected with the audiences in a very powerful way. One of the stories that, that I, that I shared, I mean, and this is where storytelling has actually become therapy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was uh, 10 years old, my sister who was five, was uh, hit by a car and killed. Oh. Um, and the, the, just, the, the thing about that story is that I was, uh, we walked home from school every day and she was supposed to wait and walk home from school with me. And this one day she didn't wait for me. Ooh, and this wow. is the day that this accident happened. Well, the, the thing is, for most of my life, I haven't been able to even tell that story without just breaking down and sobbing. Yeah. And for the longest time, I blamed myself. And it was because of my parents and some teachers and other people in my life at that time that helped me get through the, that to realize that it wasn't my fault. But I blamed myself for a long time for what happened. Um, but not until I actually wrote it out and performed it for, you know, actually shared it publicly, did I finally get to a point where I felt like I'm okay now. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that I, yeah, I can talk about this. And the, the neat thing about that kind of storytelling, uh, Stephen, for me was the fact that normally when, when I perform a play on stage, you know, as actors being humans and having egos, you know, you love when people come and say, oh, that was great, and applaud you and, and, and say, I just, I can't believe how great of an actor you are or whatever. <laughs> you love those things. Too. You know, you've got to be honest, you love those things. But this was so much more than that because people would now come up to me and tell me stories. Oh, wow. after it was, it was hard to even be at my table at, afterwards where I'm, you know, selling my wares, you know, merchandise and, and talking to people. It was hard to be able to do, you know, multitask and do two things at once because there'd be somebody standing at the edge of the table and they say, I just want to tell you a story. I'm thinking, okay, well, this isn't going to take five seconds, <laughs> you know, and, That's, and you, yeah, you've got to, you've got to hear their story. But, but that, that trigger of telling my story was a trigger for them to, and in some ways healing, because there would be so many, I, I can't tell you how many people would say, I have a similar story to your sisters. And, you know, maybe it didn't end this tragically, but, but I, I, I realized there's some family reconciliation thing that I need, need to deal with by hearing you tell your story. And that's yeah, powerful. That, that is powerful. And, you know, stories, you know, really do have, that ability to, I think you've mentioned this too, is like break down walls, help people identify with, and then, you know, they can even heal in a very special way when we identify with, uh, you know, like you said, the struggles 
of the story. Um, when when you hear a story told, uh, maybe a storyteller, an actor, whatever it is, doing their show or performance or something, what what are some of the things that you, as a professional, kind of notice to say that really draws me in, or or that that's really a powerful? You mentioned you know uh, body language, watching body language of listeners and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any things that you're looking for or listening for when you hear a storyteller um, that any of our listeners who say, you know what, look, I'm telling stories at this conference or at, my, at work, you know, I'm trying to do this meeting and I want to tell a little story. Any hints that you have picked up by watching other people in their performances? Well, I think uh, you know this. There's a difference between walking out on stage whether it's a, as an actor or storyteller or whatever, and just reciting what you have prepared and what you've memorized mm-hmm. as opposed to being in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, you know, even though I have told, whether I'm doing In His Steps or one of my personal stories, I've told these stories hundreds and some, in some cases thousands of times. I, If I'm watching somebody else, I can tell when I'm being, you know, performed at, as opposed to being pulled into the, the, the reality of that person's story. They're living it now. I can feel it. I can sense it. That emotion that they're showing right now is real. Um, they're not just, you know, reciting what they've memorized to say. Um, that's that's the the main thing. I mean, of course, there's other techniques, you know, how fast sure. are they talking, uh, and their body language, and and you know that sort of thing. Whether they're they're really, but but to me, it's 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 the believability factor of are they believing what they're saying? Wow, that's um, good. I really like that. Yeah, being in the moment and being present and aware. You know, I've heard some speakers over the years who, when they get up there to do their thing, they go through it, and it's their shtick or whatever it is. And you can tell, look, you're telling me this story exactly like you've done it the last dozen or hundred times at conferences that you've spoken at. But it's when when they look at you or whatever, and you feel like, they're totally telling this story just for us today, even if it's something they've done before. That's that. I agree. That's really a powerful. You know, way. And and it's there's the different styles too in terms of you know with with something like in his steps, which is a classic piece of literature. You have if if your listeners know about the the fourth wall, there the audience isn't really there. You know, so, uh, but at the same time within that piece, I, I break that fourth wall because I'm a narrator part of the time and then I'm in character oh, living the moment at other times. So that's one of the techniques I learned from Henry Fonda, you know, that <laughs> you go back and forth between these things. But in my personal storytelling piece, this was really hard for me to learn. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I had to learn this within his steps too, but that it's okay to break that fourth wall. Yeah. Now, speakers do that all the time. I mean, that's, that's a given. But as an actor, my comfort zone was, was the fourth wall. I mean, it's like, uh-huh. okay, I'm, I can do my scene and nobody's out there and I, you know, so I can get lost in this whole thing. But when I, matter of fact, it was, it was within his steps. Another actor friend of mine was watching me perform it. And he, afterwards he said, he says, why don't you look at the audience? And I because ah. I'm an actor. An actor <laughs> never looks at the audience, of course. He says, but you're talking to the audience. You should look at them. Oh, <laughs> really? And I had to go back and rethink that. Well, I tell you, the performances after that were so difficult because I had so ingrained in myself that you don't break the fourth wall, ah, that yeah. you don't look at the audience. And so all of a sudden, now I'm looking out there, and you're getting all kinds of mixed signals because oh. you're getting some people who are – you know, rapt attention hanging on every word. Then you got other people like my own father in a performance that I did at my home church who's sleeping, oh, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but my dad always slept in church. So that was just a given, you know, but still it, it's hard not to take it personal. Um, but you know, so you read all of those signals in your audience out there and it's very distracting, very hard to stay in the moment because you're thinking, wake up or, you know, Stop looking at your cell phone, um, yeah. it, which is, is a real reality in churches today. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, had to, you know, 
self-talk myself off a ledge, so to speak, when I look out there and I see, you know, the glow of cell phones on people's faces rather than uh, their attention on, on the performance on what's happening on stage. Now, when you do your shows and you notice the audience is engaged or maybe not necessarily asleep, but maybe not as engaged or whatever, does that affect the way that you then... Um, continue your your program. In other words, do you really try to respond to the audience, or do you say, "Look, I just want to be present here," and um, I don't know. How does that work for you? Well, for me, it, it's a, there's a conflict going on inside, internal, yes. you know, because yeah. there's a part of me that says, "What can I do to engage that person? Is there anything that I can do?" Yeah. To, to pull that person in. And sometimes it becomes like a, like a little challenge. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to see if I can, you know, I'm going to see yeah. if I can get that person. But at the same time, you can't sacrifice the show, but it, it, yeah. it becomes a major distraction. Mm. But, but ultimately it's a matter of, you know, I, I have to get beyond myself and say my purpose in being here is to tell this story. Yeah. And, and you learn to play to the people that are engaged. Okay, sure. And most yeah. of the people will be. So, so if, you know, and, and in any given pew, there might be one person over there that's really engaged and two people down, they're looking at their cell phones or they've, they're falling asleep or they're doing whatever, you know. And so you, you focus on the people that are engaged and you hope that it goes out there. But it's, you never know, too, because I, I tell you, there, there have been times when I've looked at a person and I know they're not engaged and they'll come up and they'll give you the most glowing compliment after it's over. And say, really? You were listening? <laughs> so it's well, hard to I know think, what to believe, I guess. Yeah, no, but I really love you, you know, your emphasis that you've said a couple of times, you know, being present and being in the moment. And I don't think that that's something that, I think it's something that we identify like when we're at a show, and we see people respond, and we're like, man, they're really, you know, present here. Um, there's an actress and a storyteller uh, named Dolores Hydock who's been on the show in the past, and she was doing a one woman's show, she said one time, at this small theater, and there was this giant cockroach that started walking across <laughs> the stage in the middle of the show. Like, it was a small theater, so everyone could see this giant cockroach or whatever so she was doing a one person show this lady who was living on an island or whatever and she walked over and in character she like squished it and said <laughs> you know and said i can't believe all of the bugs on this island or whatever you know it wasn't the scripted line or whatever but everyone kind of appreciated and laughed or whatever and because you know she responded to what was happening she didn't like pretend that the bug wasn't there because everyone could see there's a giant bug Right, right. There. No, so interesting. I wish I was better at, at that. That's one of the things that I've envied the performers that are actually able to take something like that and and make it work and 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 deal with it. Yeah. I was I was watching a guy who was doing a biblical character, and and it was one of those situations where somebody's phone went off in the middle of the presentation, and he just stopped, and he acted like. It came from heaven, and he, he said to the audience, "What was that?" <laughs> you know, because he you know he handled it in character. Of course, the audience fell apart laughing, and the person whose phone that was, I'm sure, felt like crawling under a rock. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I've often thought I could probably fill a book with the things that have gone wrong. You know, and, I mean the the kinds of distractions. I mean, I, I had a I had to stop a show one time because it was a small church, and this guy had a was having a heart attack of some oh kind during Lord, really wow you know so oh, no. you know and so we we took a pause while the EMTs came in and took the guy out and and then it was like okay now. Where were we in the show, <laughs> you know, and trying to, trying to get back into it, you know, and I, I've had animals on, I've had a, I was at a college chapel performing one time and, and a, a cat got into the sanctuary and I, I totally lost the audience. And the cat was actually at one point ran across the stage and I tried to reach out and grab it, you know, just to <laughs> kind of deal with this interruption. But yeah, yeah. was was a WC Fields said never perform with children and animals, you know. So uh-huh. like, uh, They'll do some unpredictable things, won't they? Children will for sure. They they sure will. You know, but that and and 
improv has been, you know, probably one of the best, biggest influences on my writing. Hmm. Um, but, but I'm more of a, I'm better at improving on paper than in front of an audience. I, I I directed an improv troupe for a while and I, I love the process and and a lot of my earlier writings, you know, are, are kind of born out of that whole process of what comes next, you know, being in the moment, what comes next, what, and, and, and just writing from that kind of a process. I, I studied uh, some improv a little bit back in the day with a guy named Keith Johnstone, who oh, yeah. I think had developed you know a sh- uh, something called theater sports or something along those lines. And, and I think he wrote I, wrote, I wrote, I read his books called Improv for Storytellers. I think. Yep. Is that, yeah. 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 And so this was probably at least 20 years ago, I think, but... But mm-hmm. it, one thing I still remember is that he's, whenever you're doing improv, he said, don't try to be funny. Right. And it was like one of the things I'm like, what do you mean don't try to be funny? I mean, if it's a comedy improv sketch or whatever, you want to be, he's like, no, d- stop trying to be, and he would get in people's cases. He would say, your goal is to be honest, not funny. Mm-hmm. Always honest yep. to the moment and not trying to be trying to make it into a joke or something. And, you know, it really stuck with me. And over the years, I've read other books on comedy and, and talked to comedians. And this idea keeps coming up over and over again, is that comedy is not about being funny. It's about being honest. Um, yep, being real, being honest. Yeah. Uh, how does that work, that that creates these moments of, you know, of humor that people engage with? Is that sort of the, what you were talking about earlier with the authenticity? Is it the same? Yeah, same I think it, that's what people identify with. Yeah. I mean, in, in improv, the, the magic of improv, and, and again, I, I don't always practice what I preach because I'm, I'm a... I, I'm not very good at being spontaneous in front of an audience, you know, with improv. I can teach others how to do it, but I'm scared to death to do it myself. <laughs> um, although I've done it, uh, you know, a few times, you know, but it's not my favorite thing. I, I lo- but nonetheless, what you have to realize is as an audience member in improv, you're, you're entering into this transaction that's happening with, with the performers on stage. Mm-hmm. And so you want those performers to respond the way you think they should respond. And that's not with the funniest line. It's not telling a joke. It's how I would feel if I were in that situation. And huh. um, in, in improv, we, we, there's this thing called, I, I, I don't know if I got it from Keith Johnstone or somewhere else, but kind of the circle of expectation. Hmm. So, when a scene is unfolding in front of an audience, your audience already has preconceived notions about what should be happening. Okay. And the, the, the best thing you can do is to, to satisfy those notions rather than going off somewhere they didn't want to go. For example, if, if, if the suggestion for an improv scene is, uh, well, it's a farm, um, and then when, when the audience hears it's a farm, they're thinking red barns, they're thinking cows and, yeah. and, and cornfields and all those things. So you better not introduce a clown. You better not have <laughs> giraffes. Um, you know, you want to keep it within what they're expecting to take place in that particular scene. We had one improver who was incredibly talented, uh, but he's also, and this it's a style of comedy that's very popular, random. He, you know, his, his humor and the things that he would say would come out of left field. Uh-huh. And he would always get laughs, but to the detriment of the scene. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so we might be having a scene that's unfolding realistically, and he would enter and rather enter as a person um, taking the suggestion from the other actors. He would, he would enter the scene being a talking squirrel. And it's like, uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, the other actors now have to deal with a talking squirrel, which was totally random and out of context and had nothing to do with the scene, you know. And so it's, it's again, the audience wants to be, you know, to be affirm. Basically, you're affirming the audience when, when you play into what they expect to happen. And the funny lines will happen. You, I think that this is something that I got from Keith's book too. You will be funny if you're real. The oh, humor yeah, will come. Yeah. You know, if you just be real in the moment. Um, because it's so much of comedy in that kind of situation is not necessarily what the act, one actor says. It's how the other actors respond and react to that that makes it, the scene funny. 
It reminds me of, uh, this discussion reminds me of uh, one of my books that I wrote for teenagers a number of years ago, and I gave it to my daughter to read the ending, and she was like, I don't like it like, I don't like it how everybody lives happily ever after at the end. I was like, well, you know, Uh she said, no, she's like, that doesn't seem honest or something. And whatever it was that she said exactly, I don't remember the precise words, but that's what I took away from is that audiences, or in this case readers, are more interested in what's honest than in what's happy. Like as far as an ending of a book, like we get to the end, and yes, we want, lots of times we want a happy ending, but sometimes the ending requires a great sacrifice of a character, you know, Mm -hmm. And that honesty that, you know, happiness does often require sacrifice um, is what people, I think, want more than just everybody lived happily or after or something. It's too easy. Right. And um, it's interesting. All of these dynamics seem to kind of keep pointing to authenticity, you know, both in humor and drama, being present, all of these you know, factors, I think, can really help people, no matter what type of story they might be working on, whether they look at themselves as an actor or improv artist or not, that, that you know, being there and, and talking about struggles in an authentic way can really help people identify with the stories that you're doing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that's what, you know, back to the, the stereotype of, of church drama, it's, it's, it's more a matter of you know, real struggles. When if I'm going to portray a Bible character on stage, yeah, I, I want that character to be just like everybody else in the in, in the audience. I want there to be elements of that person that every the the choices that they make, while they may end up being the right choice in the end, they struggled. You know, they mm-hmm. they, they they didn't come easily. They may have fought with with the forces of good and evil through the whole process before they came to that realization. And so, um, yeah, I, I think the, the idea of it, that, that, that has to be authentic. It has to be real, uh, is what, what, what communicates. It's, it's what people connect with. Now that's fascinating. Um, so Chuck, tell us a little bit about some of your books. Now I know you've done some scripts, some sketches and so on for churches and stuff, but you've also done some children's books. Yeah, um, it's kind of an interesting thing that I fell into. You know, with, with the whole timing of this, this COVID, you know, lockdown and, and yeah. the pandemic and everything, it, it, in August of 2019, I had decided after 45 years that I was going to take some time off. I really hadn't gone more than a month in 45 years without performing somewhere. <laughs> wow. And uh, truly, and and you know, some of my closest friends and I have a board of directors, and they were they were saying, I think you may be a little bit burnt out. Yeah, and I, I actually kind of lost a lot of the joy of what was my passion, and so I decided I'm going to take some time off and and just kind of you know refocus and 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 kind of like I've I've earned this <laughs> time off. Yeah. Well, then COVID hit. And then I've reached that magic age uh, to where retirement's not out of the question. And so I, I kind of have reached the point where I'm not sure that I'm, I'm pretty sure actually that I won't be going back out on the road and touring again. Yeah. Um, but so we began to realistically talk about, you know, retiring. What's that going to look like? And my wife was concerned that I was going to sit around and, uh, eat popcorn and watch TV all day long kind of thing. And so, <laughs> so I needed to come up with something. Well, I, I still wanted to do – there was some writing that I wanted to do. And um, as it happens, uh, over the you know the last five years, I've become a grandparent, and I have a, a granddaughter who has special needs. Mm. Um, she's got what's called Kabuki syndrome. It's, uh, you know, it's on the spectrum of, of you know, genetic uh, – uh, disabilities. And, mm. and so, um, I, my wife, my wife, Laura, she took my granddaughter to the park one day and because of her disability, she's got some features that are a little different from, from the normal. And they were on the swings and there was a little girl that was staring at her. Mm. And she, she said to her dad, she said, that girl looks funny. Mm. And 
the the dad handled it beautifully. He says, I don't think she looks funny. I think she looks beautiful. Oh, wow. But then coming home from that, and my wife was relating this story, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that, you know, my granddaughter is going to be one of those kids that will probably be made fun of, mm. that people won't understand, will be, you know, and, and I, I, I didn't know what to do with I wanted to do something, you know. So I, I wrote a little book in verse just to talk about her condition and, and what, what it's like and what she, you know, where she talks in the first person in, in verse, you know, about the syndrome that she has hmm. and, and addresses fully the fact that she has a feeding tube, the fact that she has a scar on her chest, the fact that she looks a little different. But that's not who she is, you know, that who she is is Lucy. And just kind of a plea to get to know me, don't get to know my symptoms, don't get to know my disability, get to know me, is kind of the thrust of the book. Um, And so it's it's just a short little book, and I found an illustrator who was fabulous, and and then I began to, you know, doing everything kind of entrepreneurially. I didn't. I, I self-published this through Amazon, um, but I got to connect with some groups that were, you know, in special needs areas and let them know about the book. Well, it turns out there's not very many books written about a disability from the child's viewpoint. And the book is, is really caught on. And so I've written a second book in the series now. So there's I Am Lucy, and then there's Where is Lucy. Um, and there's probably going to be more. And then I've also, because I did that, I've, I've got a, some other books in the queue for my other grandchildren. <laughs> so it's kind of mushrooming into something else. Um, and so the, that's, that's great, out yeah. there. And, and then I, I wrote a book of, of faith-based, faith-based limericks, which was also, it was kind of my test thing because I've never published, self-published before on Amazon. And so I'm going to m- make all my mistakes and learn all my lessons with that book. So I did that one first. Um, and that was, that was kind of fun. And limericks in and of themselves are little short stories. And so that, oh, wow. that was That's a blast. A good point. You know, I'd never really thought about that before. <laughs> Yeah, because you have a you know an opening line which establishes a kind of a who and a where, and then a, a conflict is introduced, and then a short resolution. So they're just little mm-hmm. compact short stories. And so I, I wrote this little book of limericks, and then I've I've been distinguished as an artist amongst my other colleagues that do similar sorts of things as as the guy that's been been busy. You know, I've always <laughs> been working. Yeah, and I could I I don't know how many other. Uh, Christian artists, actors, musicians have called me up and just asked, you know, how in the world do you do this, you know? So we'd have lengthy conversations, couple-hour conversations sometimes about mm. the business side of doing this kind of work. And people have said, man, you ought to write a book. And so finally I did. I wrote a book. <laughs> Church Pews, Potlucks, and a Tank of Gas, which is basically, you know, it's, it's some of my story uh, mixed in with some how-tos. And, yeah. and this is, you know, from the business side of, of doing this. So, and then I threw in a section of just some of my blogs of things that I've written about in the past as well. So that's been keeping me busy. And yeah, there's more great. stuff coming down the pike. I'm actually taking some of my scripts from years ago and reworking them into more of a story form that I could publish as, as short stories. Um, so, so yeah, see where that goes. I knew it at, at your heart of hearts, you're a storyteller and you can't, you can't get away from it. It's chased. You <laughs> That's down. right. I mean, you're an actor. Certainly. <laughs> uh, I know cause I've seen you do your shows and so on, but, um, but just, uh, just the idea of look, you know, maybe I won't be traveling as much or, uh, you know, going back on the road like that, but here's, a way that I can really, you know, encourage people through stories, through, you know, the children's books and the other products that you put out for other performers and so on. So that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. So if someone were interested in looking for some of your books, or maybe someone saying, you know what, he's not maybe touring so much, but... Now you also work with some other people in your group, don't you? That also do yeah, yeah work I have two in similar. Yeah, I have a, two other artists that are part of my my ministry, my organization. My organization uh-huh. is called Masters Image, and it's on the web at Masters Image. That's the word image, not M H. MastersImage dot com. Um, but yeah, but there's a um, Marsha Whitehead, which is actually she's actually a, an opera singer, 
who does a mixture of telling her story mixed in with some incredible music. Huh. And then Steve Wyland, who's another actor storyteller, just like I am. And he's got a mix of, um, he actually does a couple of books of the Bible as well as, uh, some personal storytelling pieces as well. So they're still active and performing. And I kind of act as a mentor manager for their, their work. So um, yeah. So that so, sounds like a great resource. If people are interested, maybe they're at a church or they have a conference and they're like, you know, we'd like something a little different. Maybe they could go to your website there at master's mm-hmm. image and, um, and, uh, you know, find out more information. They sure could. And then I'm, uh, my more recent books are all on Amazon, so they can just look me up on Amazon uh, just with my name. I don't think there's very many other Chuck neighbors out there writing books. So um, all right. they can great. find my books there. Right. Facebook page as well. So they can, they can find me on Facebook under Chuck Neighbors Actor Writer, I think it is, something like that. Perfect. No, that sounds great. Um, and so Facebook, also your website. Are you on any other places like Instagram or Twitter that people should know? I'm, I'm on there, but I'm not. <laughs> not too active. I can't yeah. keep up with all of them. Yeah, so. I know, right? And there's more coming out all the time. <laughs> How to keep up. So, well, uh, anyway, Chuck, I've really enjoyed the conversation and, you know, dialing dialing in on this idea of authenticity, of being present, of being real and genuine and honest. And it isn't so much about, you know, polish as much as it is about authenticity. I think all of those are really helpful for anyone who might be an actor or storyteller in uh, just about any, you know, venue. I I think so, too. (laughs) Well, uh, so Chuck, thanks for your time and for for being on the show, and I'll also extend a thank you to all of our listeners, and I encourage you to check out Chuck's books and his, you know, like I say, if you have a program, a conference or something, you're looking for something unique, go and check out his website at Master's Image. Was it mastersimage.com? Yeah, that's correct, .com. Yes, mm-hmm. so check that out. And uh, for other, other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, you can search for us on uh, Spotify or Amazon or podcasts, iTunes, and so on, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com, and you can listen to us through our website. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts each weekend. And always remember... The art of the story is in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.